11, when we are following um, the synoptic Jesus. And what does the word synoptic means? Anybody? All right, it's the gospel of three gospels called the synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. John is now called one of the synoptic gospels. And again, what we have been doing is we kind of like mix these three gospels together and we're trying to follow the historical Jesus, the events that he has gone through. Um, and we're trying to learn not about the synoptic gospels themselves, but about Jesus of the synoptic gospels. So we're trying to learn who Jesus is as Matthew, Mark, and Luke present him to us and or as he presented himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that's why sometimes we're not going to stop at certain passages. We're just going to try to pick up, cherry pick the passages that tell us who Jesus is. And with that, we have arrived to one passage that was mentioned twice, one of the miracles of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 7. And actually, they differ a little bit uh, between each other. So we're going to read both accounts, and we're going to talk about... Um, the miracle from both perspectives. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to verse 13. Now, when Jesus has entered Capernaum, if you remember, this is now Jesus' home church. This is the base for his ministry. A centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word. Can we say that phrase together? Because that's what we're going to be talking about today. But only speak a word. Only speak a word. And my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now we're going to read the Luke account for that same story because it's a bit different, so we want to look into both of them. Luke 7, 1 to 10. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearings of the people, what is all these sayings that, we, that Luke is talking about here? The Sermon on the Mount that we have just finished for the last three weeks. Um, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, so that the servant was so dear to the centurion, was sick and ready to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, he, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Verse 6. When Jesus went with them, and then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And uh, to my servant, do this, and he does it. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled uh, at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such faith not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well 
uh, who had been sick. Amen? Amen. All right, so <coughs> we read the story from the two accounts, Matthew and Luke. And as you can tell, there are some certain differences between how Matthew documented that miracle and how Luke documented that miracle. The main difference is Luke tells us that Jesus, that, that the centurion did not go to Jesus himself, at least in the beginning, but he sent the leaders of the Jewish community who went to Jesus and they told Jesus that, hey, you really should help that guy because he is really, he loves our nation. He even built us a synagogue. And then Jesus listened to the Jewish leaders and on his way to the centurion house, the Bible tells us that he sent his friends and he told him, you know, I don't even deserve that you come under my house. Just say a word from there, from, from where you at, and my servant will be healed. Matthew's account is a bit different. Matthew said that Centurion went himself to Jesus and uh, asked him right away that he would heal his servant. So why there is a difference? Um, the difference is primarily because if you think about it this way, think of Matthew as the bottom line guy. Even when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, we said that most likely Jesus didn't sit down and say this sermon, uh, this three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as one sermon. But Matthew just put all the teachings together to, to make one sermon, but that might not be historically what actually took place. So Matthew is, think about him as the bottom line guy. He just gives you the point. He doesn't necessarily, he's not necessarily interested in all the details. And it seems like this is what Matthew did here. So Matthew was not really interested in the details of how Jesus ended up healing that servant of the centurion, but rather just the bottom line, how things happen. The centurion said he's not worthy that Jesus come to under his roof. And that's how Jesus healed, healed him by saying a word. Luke, on the other hand, went into more details. But even in the account of Luke, if you look at verse 6 moving forward, when Jesus went with him and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying to him, Lord, do not come, do not trouble yourself. For Look at that. How is Luke documenting the sermon, the, the, the wording here in the first person? I am not. Who's I? The centurion, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Therefore, I did not think even myself worthy to come to you, but say the word. So the fact that Luke speaking here or documenting the words of the centurion in that first person tells us that Luke implied even in a way that the centurion was present when he went with his friends to tell Jesus not to come to his house. The centurion main concern is that he did not want Jesus to come under his roof. That was kind of like his big deal. Why? Because the centurion, he seems obviously he loved the Jewish people. He built the synagogue. One can assume that he's interested or at least familiar with the Jewish belief. And Jesus as a Jewish rabbi was not in a way allowed under the customs of the Jews of that time to enter into a Gentile person house and the centurion appears to be familiar with that and he did not want to trouble Jesus in a way or assume that Jesus will do something that is customary again is what the Jewish people teach of that time so his main concern his main issue here is that Jesus doesn't really need to come in under my roof which is considered unclean so he did all that he could in order for Jesus not to come there so he sent the Jewish leaders in the beginning when Jesus said that he's open to the idea he sent his friends and he said just you don't need to come under my roof amen so long story short Matthew was not per se interested in the intricate details of the miracles he just wanted to give you the bottom line of what happened and what the, the exact details we can find in Luke accounts amen now point number two just some random thoughts about the miracle here the Bible tells us uh, Matthew tells us that he was paralyzed but the Greek word that was used here is actually somebody who's laying in bed, doesn't have any strength, somebody who's so weak even to move. So we don't really know what kind of sickness or disease that uh, servant had, but what we can tell from the account of Matthew is that it's some sort of disease that the servant was laid, laying down paralyzed, he can't move. He doesn't have to be necessarily a paralytic, but 
because when you're paralytic, you really don't have much pain. But Matthew tells us that the servant was in so much pain while he was laying down, not able to, to move. It says this in Matthew that he was dreadfully tormented. He was tormented with pain beyond even what words can describe. That's kind of like the condition of that servant. Luke, who's a physician, doesn't tell us what kind of condition that servant had, but he tells us that he was ready to die. Tells you in a way that the servant was at the very end of sickness, of pain, that he was just maybe at the final stage before he dies. And in a way that shows us the magnitude, the desperate need for that servant, and the magnitude of the miracle that Jesus has done to that servant. Amen? Now, another point here. Look at what this servant says. This is really, the, the, the centurion said, this is really the point of that miracle. When Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion responded to Jesus because he didn't want him to come under his roof. And he said, you really don't have to do that. Why? He started using this analogy. And he said, listen, Jesus, I am kind of in the army. I have people under me and I have people above me. And when I have my own servants, that the soldiers who work for me, I know that my word has authority. So much so that I personally don't need to be present to see my soldier or my servant perform the command that I give to him. For example, if the centurion wants his couch to be removed at the house, I'm just using that as an example. All what he has to say is, before he heads out to work at nine o'clock in the morning, he tells the servant, hey, move that couch, and then he leaves. He doesn't need to be watching the, the servant moving the couch. He doesn't need to be investing his own energy in moving the couch. But the centurion was saying, I know that my word has so much authority and so much power that I physically don't need to be present to make sure that my word will be accomplished. I tell my servant, move that couch. When I come back from work, guess what? The couch is moved right and that's what he's telling jesus in a way he said jesus in the same way look at this guy's faith trust in the power of christ he said jesus i know that in the same way you have so much authority you have so much power over sicknesses and disease that even though my servant is desperately sick and he's about to die i still know that you have so much power so much authority that you don't even need to be there to rebuke that sickness you don't even need to lay your hand on him so he can be healed all that you have to say is just say a word speak a word and i know that your word is like mine has so much authority your word has authority over sickness and diseases while my word has authority over the servants that works for me you guys are with me now this is insane amount of faith right all the miracles jesus has done so far was like first like first contact he's contacting with the person that he's healing them but here jesus is healing from a distance and he's healing from a distance because the century untrusted that jesus has so much power so much authority that he doesn't even have to be physically there isn't that just blowing your mind away his faith and look jesus when he replied Jesus seems to be even going beyond and above what the centurion expected him to do. Like, for example, if you read with me in Luke, Luke says this in the last very verse of that miracle, verse um, 10. Well, verse 9 and 10, let's read that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Where is the word here that Jesus spoken? There's no word, right? And even Matthew's account, Jesus never directly rebuked the sickness and the disease from a distance. Jesus never said, oh, sickness, I command you to go. He just said this in verse um, 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so it will be done to you. Jesus is not even directly rebuking the sickness or the disease. He just said, go, and by the time you get there, it will be done, right? So it seems like the servant 
the centurion coming to Jesus with, with trust that he has authority that if he even speak one word, the sickness and diseases will obey. But Jesus even goes above and beyond his faith and say, guess what? I don't even need to directly rebuke that sickness and disease. You go. It's done. That's nah. it. Amen? So that is really for me the point, the one thing that we learned about the Jesus of the Synoptic Gospel from this miracle. The power and the authority of his name. That he just speak one word and it's all done. Amen? And that takes us actually to a couple of scriptures here that I want to bring to our attention. The first one is in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 4. This is what Solomon said. One wonderful verse. He said this, when the word of the king is, there is authority. There is power. Amen? What Solomon was telling us is that the word of the king carried the authority of the king. And where his word is pronounced, then the authority of the king, the power of the king, is carried through his exact very word. Amen? And if Jesus is God in flesh, then his word carried the authority of God himself. Amen? Just like in the story of creation, God commands and something happens, so is Jesus. He say a word and things happen. Amen? The author of Hebrews spoke about the power of Jesus' word. And he said that Jesus, in Hebrews 1.3, upholding all things, how? By the word of his power. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us, that Jesus is sustaining the machinery of this universe by his one powerful word. Amen? Jesus' word is powerful. It has so much authority and has so much power in it. Amen? Amen? One last thought before we talk about the word of Christ and his authority in his word a little bit more in detail. In the story of Matthew, Jesus elaborates more on the faith of the centurion. And he said this in verse um, 12. Um, Matthew 8, 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We, we're going to pause here for one second. Give you a quick note. And then we'll move on again. Go back to the authority of the word of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus here is talking about hell, right? The, the conscious eternal torment that those who don't know Christ will experience after they die. If you ever encounter a Jehovah Witness, I'm just trying to help you out here, so when you meet a Jehovah Witness, you know what they're gonna say and you, know be, you can be prepared to answer their question. If you meet a Jehovah Witness and you tell them, Jehovah Witness don't believe that sinners will experience any sort of conscious torment after they die. They believe that if you're, not a, uh, if you're a sinner, if you're not right with God, the moment you die, you just cease from existence, you're just gone. If you're a believer, if you're whatever believer in their terminology, now you're going to experience the blessing of God and the joy of knowing God. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you just cease from existence, total annihilation. And now you bring a scripture like this to them. It's like, look, Jesus said that those who don't know him will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you. That seems like somebody who's conscious of what's going on around them, right? Now, they answer you and say, well, we shouldn't take these words literally. We should understand it figuratively as a figure of speech that sinners have totally have been annihilated once and for all. Well, there's so many problems with that. That doesn't make any sense to start with, but that's what they're going to tell you. But let's look into this a couple of times, a couple of ways. Number one, they don't tell you why we have to take these words metaphorically. Right? You just say we have to take it metaphorically, but they don't tell you exactly why we should take it metaphorically. Why shouldn't you take it literally? They don't explain that to you. Obviously, the reason is because these words are contradicting what they believe. So what they do is they take God's word and they twist it up and down, back and forth into a pretzel so it can fit what they want God's word to say. But this is not what the text say. Amen? If the text is not clear that this is a metaphor, a figure of speech, then you should take it literally. You shouldn't try to spiritualize God's word when it says point blank clearly what it says. Amen? Amen. Like, for example, when Jesus said, if your right eye offend you, then plug it out and throw it away. We know this is a metaphor. Why? Because Jesus said your right eye, right? Obviously, your left eye can offend you as much as your right eye. 
So that text here kind of expects you to understand this metaphorically. When in the, in the Old Testament, the, for example, in the book of Proverbs, when we read about wisdom, that God created wisdom, Obviously, this is a metaphor because wisdom cannot be created. Wisdom is a, it's not, a, hum, it's not a, a thing or a created being. Wisdom is a character. Wisdom is something that people do or are instead of something that people become. You guys are with me? So if that text demands that you understand that text metaphorically, then you understand it metaphorically. Like um, in the book of Revelation, you can tell there's a lot of metaphors there because you cannot understand it literally. It will not make no sense if you read it literally. But if that text doesn't give you any clue that you should understand it metaphorically, then you should take it literally. Amen? So, first of all, they don't tell you why you should understand it metaphorically and they don't have no reason for that. But let's go with their argument for a minute here. Let's assume that this is not literal, that this is a metaphor. When they say that this is a metaphor of the annihilation of the wicked or the evil person, that tells you that they don't even know what a metaphor is or what a metaphor is used for. Let me explain to you. When I say, I ate an elephant, is that literal or is that a metaphor? Yeah. Metaphor. Why is that a metaphor? Because it's impossible that I can eat an elephant. You guys are with me? But what is that a metaphor for? What is the message that I'm trying to convey to you using metaphoric language? I'm trying to tell you that I was so hungry, right? I was so hungry, I ate an elephant. Obviously, I didn't eat an elephant, but look what I'm trying to do here. I'm using a metaphoric language that I ate an elephant to convey to you a fact, a truth, that I was super hungry. Now, question to you. Can I use the metaphor, I ate an elephant, to tell you that I was so thirsty? That would make absolutely no sense, that I was thirsty, so I'm trying to tell you I was thirsty, so I say, I ate an elephant, right? I can say, I drank a river. Now you know that this is a metaphor that I was so thirsty, right? Now, let's follow their logic that the wicked will be totally annihilated when they die and, and they're not, there is no conscious hell or anything like that. Why would Jesus use that metaphoric language that obviously implies, indicates that the wicked will be conscious and will be consciously tormented for all eternity to give you something to, to, to indicate to you a message that is totally opposite to that, that there will be no conscious torment in hell. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. You guys are with me? Follow me so far? All right, so if you meet a Jehovah Witness and they pull this to you, hopefully you know what to say now. Amen? Now let's go back to the word of Jesus, the authority that is in the word of Jesus. Back to the century and how he trusted in the power and the, and the authority in Jesus' word that he said, you don't have to come, just say a word. And I want to highlight with you today three different situations when just one word from Jesus can change everything. Amen? I want to show you in the scripture how one word from Jesus can change desperation to elation. How one word from Jesus can change death to jubilation, and one word from Jesus can change guilt and shame to vindication. It rhymes and everything, right? Yes. Can we say these three things together? One word from Jesus can change desperation to elation, can change death to jubilation, can change guilt and shame to vindication. Let's just highlight a couple of stories that we read in, in the Gospels. One word from Jesus can change desperation and hopelessness to elation. We see an example of that in the book of John chapter 5. We read about a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Think about that number. 38 years by a pool called Bethsaida in, in the book of John chapter 5. And the Bible tells us this. Actually, let me read a couple of things here with you. Verse 3, John 5, 3. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So imagine, this is the crowd that this guy has been hanging out with for 38 years. Just hanging out with a bunch of people who are blind, lame, paralyzed. Can you imagine? This is a, a group of people who is absolutely marginalized. Nobody even cares about them. Even when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for, for you? 
The guy answers, say, you know, I just have no one to do anything for me. Nobody can even throw me in this water when it starts moving. No one. This guy has no family member, no friends. Nobody come to check up on him for how long? 38 years. The reason why this crowd was hanging out around that pool is that there was a belief that if, if the water is stirred and the first one who jumps into the water will be healed. Now, probably this water or this spring of water has some sort of minerals that has some healing abilities. We don't have a reason to question that this is the case. It might, but it might be also a myth. It might be that nobody's getting healed. No, he has not seen anybody getting healed. He just heard that word and they just hanging out on that tiny little hope that he might be the person who gets healed if the water gets stirred. In, in, in King James and New King James, which has the older Greek manuscripts, it explains that more to us saying that the people believed that there was an angel who come down every now and then to stir the water. Obviously, that's the people believe. This is not a real angel coming down to stir the real water so people can be really healed. Obviously, it was just a spring of water that has some moves every now and then with, with minerals in it that can actually do heal the people. But imagine the situation of that guy for 38 years, hanging out with a bunch of lame people, blind people, um, paralyzed people, does, doesn't have any friends, doesn't have anybody to ask him about, even if you skip to verse 13. Imagine, Jesus at that time was a very popular preacher. Everybody kind of knew who Jesus is. And then with, look at how this man described him, verse 13. The man who was healed had no idea who Jesus was. Imagine this. It's kind of like Trump is our president for three years, and this guy doesn't even know who the president is. Imagine this. This is kind of like the level of isolation that he was living in. He absolutely have no clue what's going on around him. For how long? 38 years. I want that number to sink in your heart and in your brain for 38 years. He might have a couple of people getting healed throughout these 38 years. When the water is stirred, somebody jumps in. He might have seen this person getting healed or so. And imagine that he's just living this 38 years. His eyes are so fixated on that water, waiting for it to stir to stir so he can jump in and probably happened that when the water stirs throughout these 38 years, other people jumped in. He'd seen other people probably healed, but then he looked at his own situation and nothing has been happening for 38 years. Can you imagine the level of desperation, the level of hopelessness that this man has? For how long? 38 years. Now let's read verse 8 and 9 together. Then Jesus, well, let's read verse 7. Jesus telling him, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 7, sir, the invalid replied. I like how the NIV put him, the invalid. I just love that. What is, how good is an invalid person? Not good for nothing, right? The invalid said in verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then verse 8, then Jesus said to him, here is the word. Here is the word that Jesus has spoken. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And what is the very first words in verse 9? At once. Think about that. 38 years. The guy was paralyzed, was invalid for 38 years, hopeless and desperate. Jesus comes in and he speaks one word, get up and walk. And what happened to him? Immediately, at once, right away. It wasn't a matter of years. It took him two, three years to get up. Can you imagine now your muscles not move for 38 years? You need to go to rehab. You need to get trained on how to walk again. You imagine that? When you go have a knee replacement or any sort of surgery and you're laying in bed for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, they don't tell you now get up and walk. They tell you now we're going to do physical therapy. Why? Because your muscles has been so relaxed. They have not moved for so long he can't just stand up and walk you need to be retrained on how you can walk right but this is not the case when Jesus speak a word Jesus speaks one word and at once the guy who was invalid for 38 years now stands up carry up his mat and walk out of that pool place amen, amen. just say a word one word from Jesus hopelessness and desperation will become elation and joy Amen? But it gets even better. One word from Jesus and death 
can be changed to jubilation. At least this guy was alive. The guy who was 38 years in the, at the pool, he was still alive, right? There is hope that somehow he can be healed. He can stop, stand up and walk. But when somebody already dead, what hope they have? It's done, right? And, and that's kind of like what we see here in John chapter 11. The story of how Jesus raised Lazarus from that dead. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. And then Jesus waited on purpose. And then in that time, Lazarus died. Now Jesus go to Bethany where Lazarus is. And now we read about his sister Martha coming to meet Jesus in verse 20. John eleven twenty. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Look what Martha tells Jesus. Look at that. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. What's the point? You missed it. It's gone. It's done. It's over. Because my brother was sick for so long. She's trying to shame him maybe a little bit. If you would have come on time when we sent the messengers and told you that my brother is sick. If you would have not waited. I don't know why you waited. But if you would have not waited. My brother. We would have not been in that situation. Right? But now it's over. He is dead. And what can you do about it? It's over now. There is nothing you can do about it. And then Jesus said to her, oh, well, she continues and say, but I know that even now, after he died, right, God will give you whatever you ask. She's saying these words, but the more you dig into the conversation, you see that she doesn't really believe that Jesus can raise him from the dead at that point because she feels like it's too late. It's all over. He's already dead. Jesus cannot do anything about it so far. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Obviously, she takes this, not that he will rise in that day, but he will ultimately rise on the day of resurrection. Verse 24, Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, Jesus answers her and say, resurrection, Martha, is not an event. Resurrection, Martha, is a person. And I am the resurrection and life. If you know me, you don't need to wait for the day of resurrection because I am here, I am now, I am the resurrection and life. The one who, come, who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe that? Does she believe it or not? Look at that. Verse 23. She seems to believe. Verse 27. She seems to believe it. Yes, Lord. She replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, these are massive claims that she's making here, right? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. So you would think that she's good with Jesus raising her brother up if he's the Son of God, if he's the Messiah. But if you skip with me to verse 32. Mary comes, shames Jesus too. She's like, well, you know, you missed it. If you would have been here, he would have not been uh, dead. Verse 38, Jesus um, once more movely, deep movely, came to the tomb and uh, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, who's talking now? Martha, the one who just said that he is the son of God, the one who said that he believed that he is the Messiah, the savior of the world. But Lord, but Lord, Martha answered the sister of the dead man. By this time, there is a bad odor for he has been dead for four years. She's like, what you're doing, Jesus? It's too over. It's too late. It's way beyond the point of repair. Repair. He has been dead for how many? Four years. And he's stinks for days. What did I say? Four years? <laughs> Four days. And he stinks now. But one word from Jesus. That's all that it takes for a, not just a dead man, a man who's dead, who is already stinking with that stinky, awful odor coming out of his body. Jesus stands up in, the, in, in front of that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come Fourth, and one word from Jesus, and the death and the, uh, the odor and the smell of death now has vanished away, and the guy who was once dead is now alive. Amen? Because just one word from Jesus can de change death into jubilation. 
Think about our situation. It doesn't matter what your situation is. It doesn't matter if the doctor told you that your sickness is terminal. One word from Jesus can change that 180 degree. Amen? It doesn't matter if your son, if your child, if your father, if your neighbor is walking away from God. Is They are dead in their sins. And it seems like the odor is coming out and it stinks how they live far away from God. Amen? Just one word from Jesus and everything will be radically changed. Amen? Just speak a word. This is what the centurion prayed. And I believe that this should be our prayer today. Even for our church. I know we're trying and nothing seems to be happening. But just say a word. That should be our prayer to Christ. Just say a word. Because just one word from you, Lord Jesus, can change desperation and hopelessness to elation. Can change death to jubilation. One word can change everything. The last example. One word can change guilt and shame into justification or vindication. We read a story about that in, in John chapter 8 where, where the Pharisees try to get Jesus. So what they do, they go find a woman who's committing adultery. They get in. They get the woman. They let the guy go free. They catch the woman because they really don't care about the woman or the man. They don't care if they're committing adultery. They just want to use her as a bait. They just want to use somebody as a bait to catch Jesus. They don't care about God's command or the fact that they're breaking the law of God. None of that matters to them. All that they want is to catch Jesus. So they catch this adulterous woman. They pull her. They, they take her to Jesus and they stand before her, him and say, Jesus, the law says that a woman who commits adultery should be stoned. What do you say? Obviously, they're trying to trap him. If he says stone her, then they can go to the sinners and the tax collectors that Jesus has been hanging out with and say, Hey, look what he has done. He's just okay with stoning sinners. And then if he says don't stone her, then obviously they're going to go to the other Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and say, Look, he doesn't care about the law of Moses because he's okay with breaking the law of Moses. But what Jesus said to them, he said, if any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone. Amen? And what happened? They all start to running away, withdrew away from that scene, from the greatest to the littlest. Like the, the one who's like the most righteous in that crew, to the one who's the least righteous in that crew. They all start running away from that scene. They probably remember that they themselves might have slept with that woman at some point in past time. They start withdrawing away from that lady, from that scene. And the Bible tells us that there was only two people left on that scene. Jesus and the woman. And I told you this before, but this is just so amazing to me. When the woman was left alone with Jesus, I personally think that she was scared. That she was just like thinking to herself that she has been doomed. Why? Remember the rules? Whoever has no sin can throw the first stone. Now in all that crowd, there was only one person who has no sin. Who's that? Jesus. So who has the right to pick up the first stone and throw it at that woman? Jesus. And it all comes down to two people. The sinful person and the one who has the right to stone her, right? Now I don't know about you, if I was that woman, I would be shaken. Because I know at that time that I came to my end. I heard that Jesus say one time, Whoever, whoever, whoever of you can convict me of one sin. I heard that this Jesus did everything right. Nobody can catch him in one sin. And the woman was probably so scared thinking that this is the end. And she was just closing her eyes waiting to feel the first stone crushing her bone. But what did she hear? She hears this. Woman, where are those who are condemning you? And the woman said, probably very scared. They're all gone. There is no one left, sir. And she's saying this, closing her eyes, waiting for her bones to be crushed. But she heard one word from Jesus. What did she hear? She heard this, neither do I condemn you. And that one word from Jesus has changed all her guilt, all her shame, all the sins that he has committed, all the life of sin that she has lived. Everything has radically been transformed from that moment forward because of one word from Jesus. Amen? But wait a minute. How can Jesus forgive this lady? He's like, he hasn't died on the cross yet. How can he grant forgiveness when, when he hasn't paid for her sins yet? Well, we talked about this before. God forgave before the death of Christ. Think about it this way. 
Jesus hanging on the cross is a moment that broke history into two parts, before and after. And I told this analogy to you guys before. Think about it as credit card and debit card, right? When God forgave before Jesus, before the moment he died on the cross, he forgave as a credit card. But after the death of Christ, God forgives as a debit card. What do I mean by that? How does the credit card go? You go to a credit card company, you apply for a credit card, they see that you make $100,000 a year, whatever, and they give you $5,000 credit, right? You go spend money on that credit card because they know they allow you to spend up to that $5,000 because they know that you're gonna pay at the end of the month. You guys are with me? Now, if you have a debit card and you go spend money with your debit card, you're not spending money on credit, money that you don't have, money that is not yours. You're spending money that you already have in your bank account. You guys are with me? And that's precisely what God did. Before Jesus was hanged on the cross to pay for our sins, every single person in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that adulterous woman, every single person before the death of Christ was forgiven, not because of anything they have done, but because Jesus is going to pay for their sins down the road. Amen? And now that Jesus paid for the sins, every single person after the death of Jesus, we are being forgiven because we're taken out of the account that Jesus already has for us. We're being forgiven on a debit card. You guys are with me? So there's no forgiveness apart from the death of Christ. No matter when you live, where you live, how you live, it's only through the cross that sins can be forgiven. Amen? Before Jesus is a credit card, after Jesus is a debit card. Amen? All right, let's close our eyes and pray. Just remember that it is one word from Jesus that can change everything. Amen? <coughs> what do you learn today about Jesus of the Synoptic Gospels? <coughs> that his word is so powerful. If you're here today and you know, <clears throat> you don't know if your sins are forgiven. You don't know that if you are to die today, you'll go to heaven. You're like that woman who have been caught and you know you, don't, you deserve to be punished. I tell you today that because Jesus died, because he paid the price on the cross, he's willing today to forgive every single sin that you have ever committed if you give him a chance. If you repent of your sins and come to him and say, forgive me, God, I've sinned against you, but I come to you today and I'm willing to repent, I'm willing to change, and I'm willing to live for you. If you come to him like that, you'll hear the exact same words that the adulterous woman heard 2,000 years ago, neither do I condemn you. Go in peace and sin no more. I don't know about you, that's a massive relief. Now, whatever your life situation is, if you're already a Christian, if you're already a believer, just remember that one word from Jesus changes everything. If anything, I pray for us today that we will be like that century on. That our prayer today to Jesus will be this. Just say a word. I know my situation is desperate. I know my servant is about to die. I know his pain is beyond description. I know all of that, but I don't care because I know that just one word from you, Lord Jesus. You don't even have to be there to say that word. Just wherever you at, just say, speak the word. Speak the word, and my servant will be well. If you have a family member who's not a Christian, just cry out to God today and say, speak the word, Lord. Speak the word, and his death will become jubilation. <coughs> speak the word. Take a couple of more minutes to pray and um, we'll listen to one song and then we will be closing.
just going to close with that one song. We probably <clears throat> all know it. What a friend we have in Jesus because he's the one who can speak one word to change everything. So if you want to stand up, you can. If you want to continue sitting, you can. Just, uh, just worship Christ with this word.
just close with this prayer. I just pray that for all of us this morning, if whatever need we might have, if there's need for the orphanage, whatever the case is, whatever uh, family member, or even the street of our church, whatever the need is, we can come to Jesus today and just cry out to him the exact same prayer that the centurion asked and say, just speak a word, Lord Jesus, just one word from you. And the servant will be healed. That was the cry of the centurion. And you can put whatever need that you have after that. My child will come to follow you. My, my, my friend will come to know you. My church will be revived. My need will be met. Whatever the case is, whatever situation that seems to be so dead, almost to the point of death, just like that servant, one word from Jesus and everything will be reversed. Amen? Just speak a word. I pray that this will be our prayer moving forward in our lives. Just like that century. And just one word from you, Lord Jesus, and everything will be changed. Lord, I just come to you this morning with my brothers and sisters. And we thank you for the power of your word. That just like this lame man for 38 years, or just like that servant that was almost about to die, or even every miracle, every person that you have encountered in your life, Lord Jesus, just one word from you and everything was changed. At once, everything was immediately reversed when you spoke one word from heaven. And Lord, we ask today that you will ask you that you will help us to have that much faith like the century on, that we rely on your word, Lord God, that we seek you, we seek a word from you, Lord God, in every single situation, that you will come through for us, Lord God, with a word from heaven that will reverse everything once and for all. As we depart from this place, I pray that you will help us to trust you, to trust in your power, to trust in your goodness, and seek only one word from you. And that should be enough for us, Lord God, in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen. All right, you can stand and let me just dismiss us with the word of this benediction. Stretch your arms toward me if you would like to, and let me May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who can speak one word and change everything. Amen? May the grace of that Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 